watching and they, they know we claim to be Christians and they know where we go to church and they've heard about your pastor. So you got that against you. But God, help our conduct to be becoming and to be accurate, to depict who you are, to point people to Jesus. Bless the word this morning. Help us to not be hearers only, but to be doers. And so help us to understand this and apply it to our daily living. We ask it in Jesus' name. And the church said, a recap from last week, verses 1 through 3, and then I'll read through 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So there it is. As children, as we're growing up, we should honor our father and our mother. Uh, and we do that. Why? Because God has asked us to. It's part of his order, his structure, his chain of command. Even if our parents are less than honorable, some of us have grown up in homes where there was abuse and we talked about those things. We honor them the best we can and we do it unto the Lord because he's asked us to. There's a promise connected to this, the commandment of God. Uh, when he gave us the Ten Commandments, this fifth commandment here has a promise. What? That it may be well with you. How many want favor and blessing to follow you all the days of your life? Amen? That starts by honoring father and mother and that you may live long in the land. So there's a, a long life component attached here. It used to be that people got excited about long life. That's a hard sell these days. But long life is a blessing attached to being obedient and uh, to honoring our father and mother. The, the chapter continues here with more conduct. It shifts gears into fathers, and then it talks about the slave and the master relationship. Listen to verses 4 through 9. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of your heart, as, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill rendering service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, that this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that, the, the, that both the, your master and theirs is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So there's a lot there to unpack, but we're going to start first by looking at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We see a little shift here back to the fathers. We looked at what God requires in conduct from men and from women, from children. And all of these things keep our homes in order when we learn to love and to serve and to submit to one another, the chain of command is right under God and the blessing flows. But we shift back here and the focus shifts back onto men in their role as fathers. Now, for a, a man to be a godly man, he must first be submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Say amen. amen. Ladies, when you're picking out a man, make sure he's not only a Christian in name only, but he really is committed and he is under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that he obeys the scripture, and he lives a life that wants to please God. You know, our generation says, I just want a man who wants to please me. Well, listen, if he won't submit to Jesus, then eventually he won't want to please you either, and he'll go back to wanting to please himself. Amen? So to be a godly man, you've got to first 
be willing to submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Then you have to embrace the role of being a servant leader in your home and a priest in your home. And then you must be willing to love your wife with the same intensity that Christ had for the church. Be willing to lay your life down for your wife and children. How many understand to be a godly man, that's a tall order? Everything I just wrote to you, is, it, that's not easy to live that out. And our society demeans men and, and, and crushes the, the, the role of fatherhood, makes it unimportant. There's all kinds of things on social media and memes that I point them out to my wife constantly to see the common thread of how they're derogatory towards men and derogatory towards fathers. And sadly, some Christians post them, not realizing that it's the devil's will to undermine the fathers in the home because if you can break the order and the flow, the blessing of God spills out upon the generation, but they miss the goodness of God. Ladies, never down talk your man, never insult him, never demean him. He's your head. If you insult your head, you're insulting yourself. Men, never down talk your women, never call your wife your old lady, never talk about her like she's your mother or your servant. Marriage is very important to God. Conduct is very important to God. And here the shift is back on fathers in their role as uh, the men of God in the home. Now, God's work speaks to conduct as it relates to fatherhood. And verse 4 starts off, it's very blunt, just as blunt as children obey your parents. It gets right to the point here. Fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So first, fathers are told not to provoke. Now, how many have ever met someone who is provocative? How many ever met someone who like to just like provoke people and stir the pot? Anybody in your family, on your workplace, in your neighborhood? You know these people, man. They just like to make trouble. They like to pick at scabs. They're they're provokers. In fact, the Bible talks about something called a provoking spirit. And it's a demonic thing. What does it do? It tries to incite the righteous uh, to be unrighteous. Amen. It provokes them. Did you ever just, with somebody and they're saying things to you that are so abrasive, it's hard to maintain your composure. Come on, stop looking so Christian out there. You know what I'm talking about. So a provocative spirit, <coughs> provoking is not a good thing. If we look at the word here, translated provoke, in our text here in the New American Standard Bible, it's from the Greek word paragizo. And paragizo means to stir up anger or to enrage. So you could read that text. Fathers, do not stir up anger in your children. Do not purposely enrage them. Can I get an amen? amen. The Bible's telling us not to be provokers, not to have a provocative spirit. And come on, we know when we want to push somebody's buttons, come on, when we want to, we want to get them to lose their composure, a, a, lot, a lot of people are good at this in our generation, amen? And, and, you know, behind those keyboards in mommy's basement, they can say a lot of stuff that get a lot of people lathered up. Don't look at me like you never saw a computer before, come on. You know what I'm talking about? A provocative spirit, provocateurs. God's saying, don't, fathers, don't be that way for your children. Don't stir them up to anger. Don't enrage them. Paul, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is warning us 
as men, as husbands, and as fathers, not to be so hard on our children. Why? Because if we're too hard on them and we provoke them and we get them angry constantly by the way we talk down to them or insult them or, or dress them down, we're going to crush their spirits. And we're going to stir up anger in them. Now the young people are thinking, that's right, Pastor. You tell them. I should be treated with kid gloves like the special little cream puff that mommy says I am. Listen, mom, never get in between your husband and your children, unless he's going to commit a felony, but <laughs> never stop a father from disciplining his children. Why? Because we need a balance in our children. We need the nurturing side and we need the discipline side. And the, God puts men and women together in those roles to take the primary role to create a balance in our children. But very clearly here, Fathers are warned not to be so hard on their children that they stir them up and provoke them to anger and crush their spirits. Listen, a, a, a harsh, intense, heavenly, uh, earthly father can inject a lifetime of insecurity and frustration into their children. If you have someone, if you've ever tried to serve someone that you felt like you couldn't please, that's frustrating, isn't it? A father who is too harsh and too hard and too rigid will, will produce insecurity in their children, frustration in them. A, a child who finds it impossible to please their earthly father will have a hard time approaching their heavenly father. Why? Because they project that, well, this is what a father is. This is the way my dad treats me. He's really harsh. He's really hard. He's really inflexible. And you know what? God must be like that. We all do that. It's called projection, projection, and it's dangerous. So dads, we have to set the standard of what our children see a father as so they'll approach their heavenly father and not be insecure. We can be too hard on our kids at times. We can uh, require too much from them. How many realize something about children? They're, they're little. They can't perform like adults. They can't understand like adults. I told this story before, and my son probably going to kill me again for telling it, but when I was, even when Riley was really little, I remember he was this tall. We were out hunting in the woods, and we were chasing some turkeys around, and the two turkeys were chasing the other turkeys, and the turkey, <laughs> the turkeys were moving, and I said, you got to pick up those decoys, and we got to move. We got to hustle real fast. We got we to gotta get here. Come on, move it. And he's taking his time. He's in all these clothes that are too big for him. He's got boots on. He looks like a snowman. He's, he's coming. And he grabs the two decoys, and they're almost as big as him. And so I'm going, come on, hurry up, move it, move it. And he looks up, and he goes, hey, give me a break. I'm little, you know. And I remember looking at him. He was all the way down there, and the, the, the turkey decoys were almost as big as him. And I'm like, you are little. But, I mean, it was, it was something that impacted me, just the fact that he expressed that, that, you know, as fathers, sometimes we ask too much of them, even when they're little. And we're a little too demanding, a little too, and we know they can perform, and we know that they can do things, and so, you know, but sometimes we're just a little bit too much, and we've got to relax a little bit. Oh, it feels relaxed in here right now. It's obvious that mothers got the role of being the natural nurturers, amen? amen. One man and one woman, that was it. <laughs> any, any women nurture your children? Amen. Come on. It's just natural, right? You, you get cut, you're bleeding, you got a rash. You don't go to dad, you go to mom. She's got all the potions, all the lotions, all the band-aids. She puts you back together again. She give you a little kiss. You know, dad will be like, get out of here and go play in the mud, rub dirt on it. Mothers are natural nurturers. 
But fathers bring another component to the table that brings ma- balance to the, the, the situation here because if all you do is nurture a kid, if all you do is pamper them, if all you do is coddle them, you produce weak children who can't face the realities and the harshness of life. When, 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 we, when you go out there and you realize that you're not everybody's special little boy and that your boss was mean to you because you were only 15 minutes late again for the fourth time this week. Mom. We have a very soft generation. And you know what? It's easy to get soft if we're pampered and coddled all the time. So there has to be a, a component of discipline worked into our children from an early age. The text speaks directly to fathers and it mandates them with the job (coughs) of disciplining their children. Look what it says here. Don't provoke them. Don't stir up anger in them. Uh, Don't be too hard on them, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The King James says the fear and the admonition of the Lord. They need to understand the word of God and the will of God and the nature of God and what God requires. Realize, fathers, we are to be disciplinarians, but we are also to be the primary imparters of, of spiritual understanding and a, an example to our children. Remember last week I said that a father is his son's first hero and his daughter's first love. What an impo- Amen. Praise God. We bring something to the table that cannot be replaced, cannot be substituted for. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Fathers are supposed to be disciplinarians. They are supposed to hold up the standards of God in the home. Undisciplined children have hard lives. Children who are undisciplined, unbroken, become children who are unteachable. They become uncoachable, and eventually they become unemployable. Come on, I'm preaching. This is truth, amen. All coddled and nurtured and pampered and no demands put on and no consequences for wrong actions. They they can't be taught in school. They can't be coached on a team and then they can't be employed. And it's it's a bad situation and it all results from a lack of discipline imparted to them from an early age. Now, fathers used to be the disciplinarians. Remember what they used to say way back in the day? Wait till your father gets home. Remember that? Anybody have had that said to them? Amen. My mom used to spank us before dad got home, and then we would get round two. So we got a double portion at the Leonardi house. Ginny didn't take no guff. But fathers were to be the primary disciplinarians, and it used to be that children wanted to please their parents. Remember those good old days? <laughs> and, and that they feared the, you know, their dad's you know, disapproval on their behavior because they had to you know, answer to him. Now, fathers are supposed to be the primary disciplinarian still today. Don't let your wife take the lead in the home. Don't let her be the bad cop all the time. Don't withdraw yourself and hide and sit there on the couch and and let mom do everything. Step up, men. Step up, fathers. Take your role. Discipline and train your children. Now, how many people remember a guy named John Wayne? Amen. How many people don't know who John Wayne is? I threw them out of first service, but I don't know. (laughs) John Wayne was a cowboy. He was rough, tough, and he was kind of a role model for masculinity in in some ways. And he he had this quote. He said, life is hard, but it's even harder when you're stupid. (laughs) 
And I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. Because all the stupid decisions I've made in my life, Pastor Mike, were because of a lack of discipline. Because I was too undisciplined to do the hard thing and try to take a shortcut. Come on. Think about your own lives and think about the times you disobeyed God or you got in trouble or you made drama or you made, uh, you know, complications for yourself. Was that because you made the right decision or you took a shortcut? Our foolishness comes from a lack of discipline. So we as fathers can in, in, impart to our children a level of discipline that will bless them by keeping them out of trouble that they don't take the shortcuts, that they don't cut the corners morally, that they don't cut the corners academically or in the workplace, that they have a good work ethic, that they're trustworthy. Come on, am I describing a unicorn here or is this, this possible? Mothers are the obvious nurturers. Fathers have to be the disciplinarians. We can keep our children from making foolish decisions if we discipline them from an early age so that they have the integrity and the, and the moral uh, backbone to make right choices even when they're difficult. Now, the type of disciplinarian you choose to be as a father will make all the difference in your child's life. Dads have to choose what type of disciplinarian they're going to be. So, uh, give me our first picture here today. Dad, you can choose to be this type of disciplinarian. It was so close. There it is. Dad, you could choose to be the good time, fun time, happy, clappy activity director. Never challenging your children, never correcting them, just facilitating their cavalcade of fun. Now, that guy seems like he might be pretty laid back. Maybe in a chemical way as well. <laughs> but a child who sees their father as this happy, clappy, never, you know, correcting me, never putting a demand on me, never calling me into account for my behavior, uh, is going to be shortchanged of the discipline they need to have a productive life, to be a godly man, to be a godly woman. Uh, Dad, you are not there to be the activity director. You are not there just to keep everything running smooth and to avoid... You are not there to be your child's best friend. And I love both my boys, and uh, we, have a, we have a friendship. We do things together. I love them more than I love myself. But listen, I have to be their father because they have plenty of friends, but they only have one father. Amen. Amen. So that if this is you and you just drive them from one activity to the next and you never confront their bad behavior and you never discipline them and you never call them to account for wrong decisions or for disobedience and you're just a happy, clappy, fun time, best buddy dad, you're missing it as a Christian man. And while I'm not asking you to be, you know, hell on wheels and a terror, we're going to talk about that in a little bit here, we have got to risk, we have got to be willing to speak into our children's lives, even if they get mad at us, even if they say, I hate you, even if they say, I, I, don't, you know, I don't want to be, listen, we have to be willing to risk that if we love them enough to speak the truth into their lives so that they can embrace discipline. We can choose to be another kind of uh, disciplinarian, and that's the nitpicky judge. If you've ever worked 
with someone or worked under someone or even had a parent in your life that was a nitpicky judge, you know the frustration of trying to please someone who is, it's never enough. I've seen a lot of fathers like this. Their children can do 99 out of 100 things perfectly, but they harp on that one thing as if it was everything. And sometimes we can be so demanding and so nitpicky, and you know, just because we see an issue doesn't mean we have to jump all over it and pounce on them, amen? Once in a while, we, we can let things go. Dads, pick your battles with your children. Young men who are thinking about being married and having children, learn to pick your battles in all things. I mean, some things are just not worth it. Sometimes, you know, they're just having a bad day. You know, children are actually just miniature people. You ever have a bad day? You ever wake up with a bad attitude? Yeah, ask your wife. She'll tell you guys. My wife said, go back to bed. You're crotchety today. Try again tomorrow. No, you know, give them a break. Sometimes they're just having a bad day. Sometimes they're tired. Sometimes they're overwhelmed. The nitpicky judge, man, I'll tell you what, it's not a good way to approach your children. You have to correct them, but lighten up. You know, sometimes you need to praise someone much more than you correct them. In management and teaching managers how to deal with people, they always would teach you to, you know, praise an employee or point out the things that they do well, you know, give two good things and then go, you know, and talk about that one thing that needs to be worked on, amen? When someone comes to you and they acknowledge, you know, you're, you're doing good, you're doing good work, you have the right heart, but you need to work on this, you see, the nitpicky judge won't do that. He'll ignore all the good stuff and go for the throw on the one thing and listen, it's really hard on children. It puts a lot of pressure on them to constantly feel like they can't please their father. They're going to project that on their heavenly father and think, you know, how can I please God? I can't even please my own dad. We're not the happy, clappy, fun time, best buddy. We've got to step up and take a risk and bring correction and discipline into our children's lives. We're not to be the uptight, nitpicky judge because we crush children like that and they feel that there's no way to please us. How about the third approach here? You can also choose to be a drill sergeant. Is that what he's saying? There's a role for discipline. There's a role for the drill sergeant. There's, a, there's room for sometimes to be strict and to demand order, you know, and there's a place for that. But you cannot always approach your children like this, yelling, screaming, insulting, berating. You know, some of you have seen movies. Some of you have been in the military. You know how these guys roll. And that's not what a father is supposed to be. There's room for stringency and structure and discipline, but it has to be balanced. You say, well, why do some people in places like this respond to that? Because listen, what that guy is trying to produce in a short time is to take that little soft cream puff who's mommy's special little boy and turn him into a warrior that can fight and win battles. Dad, that's not what we're trying to do with our children in a sense that we have to be that intense all the time. Those guys have a short time to produce something, amen? Dads, you and I have a lifetime to speak into our children's lives. We have to do it in a measured way. There's times to be tough. There's times to be gentle. There's times to bark, and there's times to just listen. As a father, I've shown my teeth plenty of times, 
and it's put my boys in a place where they're at the top level in everything they do. Why? Because I put a demand on them from when they were small to perform and to do things, to act like little men. Now that they're bigger, they, they perform well, and I can count on them. I look at my children in the woods when we're dropping trees or we're dragging logs or we're, we're doing things that are dangerous, and, and I'll say to them, I need to depend on you like a man. Can I depend on you? And they rise to that occasion. But we've got to do it in love, and we've got to do it with balance. I don't have any daughters, and God knows what he's doing, apparently. <laughs> but those of you who have daughters, you, you can't bark at them. You can't, you, you can't, you'll crush them. Good luck with them. God bless you and Godspeed. <laughs> but we're not the fun time, happy, clappy, everything's okay, never a, a, a harsh word guy. We're not the nitpicky judge. We can't be a drill sergeant. Uh, do we have that picture in the last one or we, we, we never got it? We got it. Okay, there it is. What God wants us to be, not a football player, but a good coach. God wants dads to be like a good coach. If you've ever had a good coach, you know there's someone you can look up to, someone that is interested in you, someone that sees talent in you and wants to bring it out. Amen. Coaches have whistles, which means they have authority. They can blow that whistle and call your actions into account but they do it in a way that's best for the team and that's best for you. You and I as fathers, men, we need to be good coaches to our children, to motivate them, to bring out their potential, amen? Some of you have done this. Some of you are great fathers. Some of you have brought out great things in your children, and I applaud you today for that. You say, well, they're grown now, and they're headed out the door. They're headed for college, or they have families of their own. You're still their favorite coach, because nobody loves them more than you do. So continue to blow the whistle. Continue to speak into their lives. Continue to bring out the best in them. Not as the happy, clappy, yes man activity director. Not as the nitpicky judge. Not as the drill sergeant. But as a good coach. And I'm not telling you get a whistle and a headset. You might want to try. I don't know. But have the heart of a coach. And you'll raise children that have respect and discipline. And they'll be productive members of the body of Christ and productive members of society. And that's what we're looking for here today. Verse 5 through 9. That was one verse. We had so much fun. Verses 5 through 9 shift gears again here. We go from uh, talking to men in the realm of fatherhood to now talking about God's desired conduct in the area of Slave and master relationship. Now, this is an interesting bit of text that was relevant to those people in biblical times in a way that's a little bit unrelevant to us. But let's just read the text here, and I'm going to explain to you how to apply this. It says here, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with the good will, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good things each does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Verse 9, and masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So let's talk about this text here today. Let me start off right out of the box by saying 
In no way, I want to make this crystal clear, is the word of God condoning the evil practice of slavery. We understand that, right? Say amen, please. Slavery has always been and forever will be a sin. Now, slavery has been around for as long as man has existed. You remember the children of Israel were in bondage for periods of 400 plus years at times. And they served in Egypt. What were they in Egypt? They were slaves. So slavery, you know, the hate America crowd as well. Slavery was invented in the United States. We were the only ones to ever do it and we're horrible. Slavery's been around forever. In fact, it's still around today. In certain areas of sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East, they are still capturing and enslaving people. You can go on the internet and see people in chains being sold in these places. It's a disgusting evil that still takes place, still in the hearts of men who see others as infidels, subservient to them, that they could be bought and sold and used for labor. Slavery is a wicked, ungodly practice. And the Bible in no way condones it. No matter how powerful or wealthy or talented another human being is, they are never justified in thinking that they can own someone. Texts like this are in the Bible. What are they there for? They speak to people in situations like this in biblical times and throughout history that found themselves in these conditions. When Jesus walked the earth, there were slaves. There were people who owned other people and used them for labor, indentured service. And you say, well, how did that stuff happen in those days? Well, nations would conquest and they would capture other peoples and they would bring them into bondage just as they did with Israel. Uh, sinful cultures taught that the conquering and the owning of other peoples was perfectly justified. Also, there was a uh, component where financially, if you couldn't pay your bills, you didn't get to declare chapter 11 or chapter 13. Hello? Oh, well, you know, I rang up all my credit cards. I can't pay back. Oh, well. No, back then they said, well, now you work for me and I own you until your bill is paid off. There's a reason why it's called MasterCard. You were a slave to that thing. Oh, I'm free. Let me see your finances. You're not free. I have a home. No, that's the bank's home. Oh, nobody likes me now. I don't like me either. But the truth is that slavery is an ugly thing. It existed in those times. People found themselves in those situations. And the Bible addresses it. It was a huge part of the culture in biblical times. And literally, it would take centuries to disentangle men's hearts from it so that the gospel could convince them that it was evil. Now, thank God today, while it still exists in flashpoints in our society, the, our, our culture as a whole has rejected it as evil. Do you know the entire uh, epistle of Philemon, it's only one chapter, Philemon in the Bible was the apostle Paul pleading for the fair treatment of a runaway slave named Onesimus. Onesimus had run away. He was a slave. He ran away from his master. He got he became a Christian, and he became one who served alongside Paul in ministry. Paul said he was a great asset to his ministry. So Paul knows his master, Philemon, and he writes an epistle to him, uh, and he leverages his apostleship. Read Philemon. To, he leverages his apostleship to get Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. You know, we sing that Christmas carol, our slave is now our brother. 
You see what the gospel does? It breaks the chains of bondage. It makes us equal recipients of the grace of God and the blood of Jesus. It makes us brothers. Everywhere the gospel goes, it eventually destroys the evil of slavery. So you say, Pastor, we got all these rules of conduct here that apply to a situation that we don't find in our culture anymore. How do we make this applicable? Well, you can make perfect application of this in the employee-employer relationship. These principles apply, and they become God's requirements for conduct in the workplace. How many people work? A couple of you. If you're in the workforce, even if you work for yourself, you say, well, Pastor, you, you, know, who, you work for God. Yeah, I work for God, and guess what? I need to make sure I please him. You need to make sure you please your employee. You need to make sure if you're the boss, there's certain requirements there. God has rules for conduct for employees and employers. Now let's look at verse 5 here. It makes it real clear. Now, I'm going to replace the word slaves with employee. How many people have ever felt like you were? Come on, second service, loosen up a little bit. You ever work for a boss that you felt like, this guy thinks I was put on earth to serve him? I've worked for people like that in ministry. I've seen that in, in, in pastors and preachers and evangelists. They look at everybody like they were put on earth to serve them. What a disgusting display when the Bible teaches us that it's servant leadership. Carry my bag, drive my car, hustle me around. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you have been in churches like that. It's not servant leadership. God requires something from the conduct of his, those who are employees. It says, employees, be obedient to those who are your bosses according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. So there's a component here where we need to be submitted to those who are employers. God makes it very clear that he has some rules for conduct here. Now, if you're a Christian in the workplace, there again, people are judging what they think about Jesus by the way you behave yourself. You know those employees that, you know, come in late and have somebody else punch them in or leave early and have somebody punch them out? Come on, you know those employees that you, they got to be watched constantly? You know, they're supposed to get a 15-minute break, but it's 25, 30 minutes. They're supposed to have, you know, a half-hour lunch, but they're gone an hour and 15. Come on. God is watching and God has some rules. You and I as workers need to respect our employers. If we're Christians, we should be the best workers in the place. Why? Because we're not working for the company or the boss or the man. We're working for God. Amen. And our reward comes from the Lord. Those of you who have been promoted and lifted up and given positions of authority and pay increases, that promotion didn't come from X, Y, and Z company. It didn't come from the favor. Uh, it didn't even come from, you know, your superior hard work. Promotion comes from the Lord. There are people who qualify. There are people who have abilities. There are people who have gifts, but they have no integrity. They, they can't be depended upon, and they, they get passed over all the time. You and I as Christians should be the best employees. God requires us to work, not as if we're working for men, but that we're working for the Lord. It says, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart. Now, listen, if you're thinking that the word is telling you to tremble before your boss, that's really not what it's telling you to do. 
You should respect every office. Well, they got to earn respect. Who the heck are you to tell people above you that they got... Listen, God tells us to submit to authority so we respect authority and respect the office. We live in a culture that thinks everybody has to earn their respect. You're a bag boy. At the, uh, I need to be respected here and I'm, uh, you know, I've arrived and now I'm... You guys ain't, you ain't feeling what I'm laying down here? Next week... We're just going to have some people taken out back and we're going <laughs> to. But it's a bad, bad attitudes in the workplace, bad attitudes towards authority, bad attitudes towards leadership. And those of you who are bosses know it's no picnic being the boss. You own your own company. Oh, it's a lot of fun, isn't it? You got to do everything. So as employees, we should respect our bosses. We should ex- respect the terms of service. If they say be here at this time, be there at that time. If they say work till this time, work to that time. If they tell you stop spending 20 minutes on your phone in the middle of the day, stop doing that. I ain't getting any traction here. <laughs> Have respect for the person who signs your paycheck, but the fear and trembling belongs to the Lord. We fear and tremble before the Lord. Why? Because he controls our next heartbeat, our next breath, our next promotion, where we're going to end up in life. We need to learn to fear the Lord. Now look what the text says here. In verse 6, it makes a reference to eye service and men pleasers. What's that eye service all about? Well, we all know the type of worker who will only look busy and productive when the boss is nearby. Come on, you ever seen people like this? You know, I used to work in a warehouse at Pepsi, a forklift driver on a night crew. That's the illustrious position I had when we just got married. And I remember there's guys who would like sleep in the two liters, man, or they'd just hide in the break room. Then the boss comes from, you know, the boss was up in a big perch up there, and once in a while the CEO would come by with a $1,000 suit and $500 shoes, and you'd see these guys, they'd like wake up from the dead, and they would come to life. And they'd be like, look busy, and they look here, and they're shouting out orders, and hey, you got this, and did you wrap that order? And all of a sudden, boss is gone. <laughs> Men pleasers, looking for eye service. that They, only, they don't want to be good, they don't want to do good, they just want to look good. And God says, don't serve like that. Don't be a men pleaser. Don't serve for eye service. If you have to be watched all the time to be productive, that is not how a Christian serves. I mean, does Jesus have to come down and just like get on your back all the time? Hey, Rick, what are you doing? Hey, Rick, what are you doing? Come on, Rick. You got that Wednesday sermon. You got to work on that. Come on, Rick. Get in the Bible. You got to do your devotions. You got to pray. Come on, Rick. We all know people like that. Not productive. Got to be watched all the time. There's not enough people to watch them all day. It becomes easier as a good worker just to do their work and pick up their slack. But those people make bad work environments. Don't be like that. Don't serve for eye service. Don't just do your best when people are looking. Men pleasers in the workplace try to manipulate people in positions of authority to get favor and promotions. And listen, God sees right through all of that. Do your best, even when no one's looking. That's integrity, and God will honor that, and promotion comes from it. I want to say something to you. Any Christians here today? Any Christ followers? Listen to me, Christian. 
Man is not your source. Listen to me, Christian. Government is not your source. Listen to me, Christian. Your employer is not your source. Well, I've got to, you know, schmooze, and I've got to rub shoulders, and I've got to kiss butt, and I've got to do this, and I, yeah, I just said kiss butt in church. Yeah, I've got to do all this stuff, and, you know, so I look good, so I climb, claw my way up the corporate chain. Hello, Full Gospel Center. Sally, there are Christians who behave that way. And don't you know God is your source? <sighs> Men pleasers, eye service making an idol of those who have positions of authority, trying to schmooze your way up the ladder and find favor, making man an idol when God is your source. Verse 7 through 8 show that instead of being men pleasers, we should be Christ pleasers in the workplace. With goodwill, verse 7 says, render service as to the Lord, not to men. So we're working for Jesus we're working for God. We're not just working productively when we're being watched because God is watching us all the time. Why? Verse 8, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. How do you get promoted? How do you become a supervisor? How do you become a boss? How do you learn to run your own business? by being a servant, by serving well. It's all about service leadership. It's all about being a servant, guys, in the home. It's about being a servant in the workplace. Oh, it's so quiet now. You're hoping I would tell you, well, just name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. Just claim your promotion in Jesus' name. But you got no work ethic and you got no integrity and you got to be watched all the time. We can't even trust you to, to do basic things. Oh, help me, Lord. My, my, I'm just about to say some stuff. I better go back to my notes. <laughs> so as workers, God requires a lot from us. Young people, understand, when you start at the bottom, have a humble heart. This is a proud generation. You're going to have to do some things that you think are beneath you, but trust me, they're not. And if you humble yourself and do those things that seem beneath you, you, God will promote you up the chain. You'll find yourself in positions of leadership and authority if you learn to serve. Amen. But if you have a bad attitude and you complain and the boss is a jerk and why do I have to do this and I'm calling the union. <laughs> those people have a special name. They're called unemployed. <laughs> so there's many things that God says about what the employee should do. But he also speaks to the employer. Listen to verse 9. It's the last one we're going to cover. It says, masters, but we'll replace that with employers or bosses. And bosses, do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. There again, it's having a heavenly perspective and seeing that in the final analysis, it's God that's in control whether the employee or the employer, whether the servant or the leader, whatever the situation would be, God is the boss of everybody. And in the final analysis, he judges us and rewards us for how we conduct ourselves in this life for eternity. I don't know how long you're planning to work, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, but that's not as much as eternity. So you and I better please God in what we do and say and how we behave because eternity is a long time to suffer the consequences of wrong choices. So he says here to the employers, you know what, do what's right, because you have a master in heaven, because God is watching you. 
People who misuse their authority, people who are you know, in positions of power and they become corrupt and misuse their authority. Uh, in our culture right now, in our government right now, boy, this is so applicable. Do these people who cheat and lie and steal and swindle, do they realize they're going to stand before God? And you might be able to fool everybody, and you might have enough power to get away with it, and you might be able to manipulate the sheeple and the media and everybody, but you will stand before God and give an account for wickedness. And people who misuse their authority, national people, nations that, you know, you got the upper upper control living in, uh, you know, just, you know, wealth, and they have everything, and people underneath them starving and poor. This goes on in countries. Don't you think God in heaven notices that? People who misuse their authority will answer to almighty God. Many times it's not for us to bring judgment up against them. It's for God. God will judge them. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. He says to those who misuse their authority, bosses who misuse their authority, he says what? Stop threatening. Look at this here. Why? Because an ungodly person who wants to manipulate uses threats. And stop threatening them. And, 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 and instead of that, have respect for other people. And show people dignity. Every boss should, everyone who's in control of other people should give their workers dignity. Amen. It's amazing what happens in corporate America. Employees give their lives for a company, lay their lives down, work hard, and they fire them just before they retire so they can get away with paying them less. There's no loyalty. There's injustice. If you think God in heaven is only worried about the worker who punches in that, you know, he worked really hard for his eight-hour shift. No, he's watching those in authority. And those who misuse their authority, whether they're politicians or pastors or bosses in the workplace, they will answer to God. We need some fear to visit our generation again. Too many people think they can get away with anything but there is going to be hell to pay for those who misuse their authority. Let us remember, if we're in a position of authority, to have consideration for others. In corporate America, they could care less about your children, about your marriage, about your family, and they try and suck as much as they can get out of you, and it leads to divorce, and it leads to all kinds of domestic problems, and they could care less. But God cares. And if you're a Christian and you're a boss, if you're in charge of others, treat them all with dignity and respect because you have a master in heaven and he will treat you accordingly to how you treat others. God's word is very clear about our conduct. For employer, employee, there are things that God asks us to do. In the final analysis, we all work for him. Our promotion comes for him. Our reward comes for him. And we must fear him whatever role that we're in. Young people, listen to me. Do your best. Be humble. There's times where you're going to be treated unjustly. I, I work construction coming up. I've had bosses grab me, throw hammers at me, uh, threaten me. They didn't kill me. I survived. I learned some things about how to treat others. Sometimes the stuff we go through, it's, it's not fair, Pastor. It's unjust. I get it but it's all part of the process to make us who God wants us to be. What Jesus went through was unfair and unjust. 
but he's the savior of the world. So men, be godly men. Don't be the good time, fun time disciplinarian and the, the nitpicky judge or the drill sergeant, but be a good coach to your children. Take your role as disciplinarian seriously. Impart into them the things of God. Be a godly man in every way. And if society scoffs at you and society dishonors you, God in heaven will honor you for what you do in eternity. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, I just thank you for this blueprint for Christian conduct. And Lord, some of it's hard to swallow. Some of it's easy. Some of it we want to cheer and some of it we want to hide under our little seat. But Lord, wherever it stretches us, wherever it applies to us, whatever it convicts us or wherever it encourages us, we thank you for it because it's your word and we just, we need truth, God. We need truth. So let the truth of this change our hearts and minds. I pray for fathers who are raising children right now. I pray for fathers with grown children. I pray for young people who want to have children someday. Burn these principles deep into our hearts so that we can produce fruit and rejoice in it with you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.